I remember closing my eyes, and when he gave me the shahada, it was like Allah took everybody out of the room. And it was just me and Allah. And I just remember tears just rolling down my face. I could hear the brother's voice, but it was like he wasn't there. Assalamu alaikum guys, what's up guys, how you all doing? This week's guest is none other than Lisa Vogel, a Muslim fashion icon and businesswoman who helped pave the way for hijab and Muslim fashion in America. She converted to Islam after making a documentary on the hijab in college, which then inspired her to co-found Verona Collections with Yasmin K, introducing for the first time ever a Muslim fashion brand in line in a major retailer in the United States. She then went on to marry a Muslim man who was seen as pious, but how he treated her and her family is nothing less than shocking. Rather than pointing fingers and naming others, I had to look at myself and see what traits do I have that can make me susceptible to being such a tyrant in my my home because I would never want to treat someone let alone my wife like that when any person is in a position of power who they truly are comes out he pulled my shirt into another room slammed the door locked it and then knocked me out that was the first time he physically abused me stick around for the Ansari podcast Lisa Vogel, thank you for joining the podcast. I'm honored to have you on. Appreciate thank you it. Thank you so much. One of the things that I'm very fascinated about your story and wanting to have you on is the sheer resilience and the exemplary drive behind it all. Can you tell me a little bit about your story and how you grew up? Where'd you even grow up in the first place? I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, suburban area. And being very honest and direct, very privileged in every sense. Financially, grew up in great neighborhoods, great schools. I did not have much access to the world and cultural traveling was like to Paris. <laughs> so I didn't really have a good understanding of the world until I went to college and started kind of living on my own. I was a devout Christian. I was actually kind of the oddball of the family. No one really understood me, but my family was very different where they weren't attached to religion like I was. It was just something that I was naturally drawn to. And we can talk about it, but Islam later came into my life. In my late 20s. Okay, so it was in your late 20s mm -hmm. where you found a set. Yeah. Right. What, what do you think events happened in your life, whether directly or indirectly, that led you to a set? You know, looking back, Islam kind of popped into my life several, like, over the course of a decade. My first introduction to Islam was my move to Morocco. And I have always been this, like, free spirit. And I decided to take a year off of college and save up all my money and travel. So I went through Europe, I backpacked for like several countries and I decided to move to Morocco for three months. And then I taught English at the American Language Center in Tangier. And I lived with a Moroccan family. And because I just wanted to immerse myself in the culture, not the religion necessarily, I decided to live like them as much as I could. So I wore the abaya and the hijab. And I tried to fast with them, even though I would like totally sneak food in between. <laughs> <laughs> in between. But I tried. And I would pray with them in, at pleasure time. But it was more just about the experience and appreciating the way they lived. It wasn't necessarily learning about Islam. Later on, I graduated college. I went to and got a corporate job and it just wasn't happy. So I decided to literally quit. No thought into it. I just quit and I moved to Florida because I wanted to go to photography school. It literally was just an epiphany. I'm like, I'm going to be a photographer with no like thought behind it. It wasn't anything about that I've always dreamed of being a photographer. I just wanted to do it. So I dropped what I was doing, moved to Florida. And second semester into photography school, 
I was given an assignment to do a documentary of our choice, and I decided to focus on why women wear the hijab because I wore it when I was younger in Morocco, but I didn't really have an understanding behind it. So I started interviewing local Muslims, and that's really what led me to my journey of studying Islam because as I did the interview, I was very like impressed with the answers, and I didn't realize how much of a closed mindset I actually had myself because looking back, my questions were ignorant. And it was kind of that uh, almost American view of the hijab being oppressive, when even in fact, I respected it myself and I tried to honor the local culture. And I, I use that word loosely because we know it's religious and not culture, but in my mind, a cultural norm for them. And having been a devout Christian my whole life, I didn't even know it was in the Bible. So it was the first time I learned about hijab being in the Bible. And from there, that my mindset changed and I started learning about Islam. Interesting. So can you tell me a little bit about what preconceived notions did you have about hijab? Just hands down, it was oppressive. Okay. Yeah. I literally, I had that mindset and I admit it. And I don't get upset. And maybe it's easier for me to not get so upset when people have such an ignorant view of Islam because I was in their shoes and I think... It's not ill intent. It's just they don't have access to correct information. Now it's a little bit different because we're not we're talking about the age of social media where they have a lot more access to correct information. But if you think about it, the way I grew up, 90s and early 2000s, our information was from the news and it's very it's their narrative, not the correct narrative. So we're fed misinformation. And if you don't have the ability to really understand what Islam is about or what the hijab is about, I don't necessarily blame them. Now is a little bit different because we have a lot more access to correct information. But yeah, that long story short is in my mind, it was still oppressive. And so. this journey with photography and doing a project on the hijab kind of really changed the way you viewed the hijab? Completely, 100%. I started recognizing it's not that women who don't wear hijab are somehow oppressed as well. It's that women are inundated on what it means to be perfect. And this is a perfect body and this is the perfect, you know, skin tone and this is the perfect body shape. And this is we are constantly told what beauty is when none of it's real. None of it. No one can live up to these standards. And the beauty industry is oppressive, making women feel that the more they reveal themselves, somehow they're liberated. When in fact, a liberation comes from whether or not you have the choice. And for me now, being much wiser, in my opinion, the hijab is what liberates me. It's that I choose what people can see of my body. Wow. So what would you say to someone that still thinks of the hijab as oppressive now that you're on the other side of it? I would say that the meaning of oppression is to force something to do anyone in either way, that the meaning of liberation is to have the choice. You know, and we can we can say that and very easily so there's other countries that are Muslim. They're oppressive towards women because they force the hijab on them. That's not what Islam is. Islam is about the choice to follow it or not. It should never be forced either way. Yeah. And vice versa is true, right? Yes. Where Whereas women in France should not be told that they can't wear the burkini or they can't wear the niqab or, you know, women in America should feel free without feeling like they're going to get attacked by Islamophobes just because they simply want to cover. Yeah. So what was the breaking point? What made you then become Muslim? Did that happen years later from this project or was it close? It was about nine months to a year. When I go into something, I go 
full forced completely in there's no I have no gray I'm a black and white type of a person when I'm look you know when I'm involved in something and I was reading the entire Quran I met with imams I was watching YouTube videos on Islam I you know read books I did everything I could to really study and the short answer of why I chose Islam was I had already believed in one God. That's a misconception that Muslims have about Christians, that they believe in. The Trinity is looked at as, as one God. And I know it doesn't make sense <laughs> at all, but in their heart, they believe in one God. But the contradictions in Christianity and the questions that I had and doubts that I had in Christianity, Islam answered for me. Can you name a couple or do you not? Sure. I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm sure I have a long list. But for instance, there's no understanding in the Bible as to what happens if a child doesn't receive the word of God. They will, there's nothing in, as far as a verse. You can't show me a verse that tells me what happens, right? So in Islam, we know that children are, they, they go to heaven. That A three-year-old is not going to be doomed to hell because they didn't, you know, understand Islam. Whereas we know the answer that children go to heaven. We're also judged based on what we know in Islam, the Trinity itself, we can break that down. Is Jesus God or is he the son of God? And if Jesus is God, then why would God need to sacrifice himself to forgive you? He's powerful enough to forgive you if he created you. So just even breaking the Trinity down is reason enough to believe in Islam. Yeah, it's actually almost an insult to the mercy of God. Absolutely. To say that he has to, say to. That he has to sacrifice something in order to forgive you to enter into heaven. He created you. Yeah. So... He should Absolutely. just be able to forgive exactly. you. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Islam has an answer for everything, whereas the other religions don't. You can ask any question, anything, and Islam will provide an answer. It really, it has to be both the unconditional belief that there's one God, and then the logic also follows up with it as well. Yeah. When was that moment of Hidayah? When was that moment of guidance for you? Did you feel it? Was it a memorable moment for you? The day I decided to finally convert to Islam, it was the Friday before Ramadan in 2011. And I went to this like humble masjid in Florida by myself. I went and listened to the khutbah and prayed Jama'ah. Which was Friday prayer. Friday prayer, yeah. I kind of sat in the masjid for a little bit after I was done. And I sat next to this woman. And I was like, you know, I'm not, I don't know how the conversation started. I'm like, yeah, I'm not Muslim, but... Like, I th I'm thinking about converting. So I just started chatting with her. And she's like, well, I really think you should do it now because Ramadan's about to start and there's so many blessings. So I remember her telling me that. And I walked out to my car and I prayed. And I was like, God, please give me a sign if this is the right religion. And all of a sudden, I got chills from my head to my toe. And this just complete and utter peace in me. So I was like, yeah, this is the right religion. So I went up and talked to the first sister that I saw. And I said, I want to take my Shahada. And then she went and immediately grabbed a brother. And then suddenly the whole masjid is like focused around me. And I'm like not expecting that. Like that was the first introduction to the Muslim community. <laughs> like, like where all of a sudden everyone wants to video record your shahada. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> and like the whole, everyone created this circle around me. And I just sat there with the brother and, and his microphone. And I remember closing my eyes and when he gave me the Shahada, when he when I repeated the Shahada with him, I just remember it was like 
Allah took everybody out of the room. And it was just, I could hear the brother's voice, but it was like he wasn't there. And it was just me and Allah. And I, it's a feeling I can't put into words. And it's very difficult to express, but I'll never forget it. And I just remember tears just rolling down my face, just completely feeling like it was just me and Allah. And I said my shahada, I woke up. It was like as if like I ventured into a new world. I can't even explain it. And then everyone started hugging me and kissing me and, you know, welcome to Islam. So, yeah, that's that was the moment that I finally decided to become Muslim. Well, what, what was the biggest difference between yourself when you converted first before that? Oh, night and day of who I am. One is that I thought that suddenly my life would become easier. I'm Muslim. I'm on the right path. Alhamdulillah. That's when the majority of my struggles in my life occurred. Some of the worst moments in my life. And although they were horrible, I did get closer to Los Montala in the process. A lot of ups and downs. But I also think that if it weren't for the trials that I went through, that I wouldn't be who I am today. And I look at them and I'm saying, I'm thankful for these trials. It's a place of privilege to be able to try to go in and help other people. So I believe what I, I went through, what I did was to help other people. I really believe that. And I, ho- and I pray and hope it's helping. Yeah, I actually told my friend when he converted to Islam, now the test begins. Yeah. Before you were kind of sitting back, chilling. Now, because, uh, you know, the, one of the opening passages of the passage of the spider in the Quran is, do people think they will claim that they believe and we won't test them on that? Verily, we've tested those before them. And, and the verse goes on. It's so true. You know, at the end of the day, you know, this less, this life is a test. You know, it's not supposed to be easy. Like, obviously, Allah provides ease. But we are supposed to have a higher standard as Muslims. And they say that when Allah loves a person, when Allah loves one of his servants, he tests them. Mm-hmm. What kind of questions or fears arose as you were looking into Islam or thinking about becoming Muslim? I mean, you were probably thinking, uh, like many other people do, my family, my friends, what will I say to them? What am I going to start wearing, dressing differently, the hijab? Like, it feels like your whole world is crashing in on you. How did you deal with those questions and those fears? Okay, so one, I think there's a misconception that reverts had this like, and I'm not saying you're, you assumed this, I just mean in general, had this like crazy past and this like party lifestyle that they all of a sudden had to change. I didn't eat pork be- like as before. I, I've had it when I was younger, but I already didn't eat it. I didn't drink. I didn't go to clubs. I didn't like, <laughs> so there wasn't much of a lifestyle change that had to really change. The hijab and then actively praying were the biggest changes and that came over time in fact i started wearing the hijab before i took my shahada because i knew i wanted to convert and so i started practicing like i was muslim i did it in phases and i always recommend new reverts that listen like islam is a journey and you have to be you know if you walk towards allah allah will run to you so alhamdulillah like i i think i started doing all five prayers within like a year or two the fasting was the hardest for me, and it still is the hardest. I do it. I hate it. <laughs> like, I'm not going to try to be like, act like I love it. I hate it. Like, absolutely hate it, but I do it. And so, inshallah, hopefully I'm rewarded more for it. But um, How about your family? How would you deal with that? My family did take it rough. It was, you know, my dad, who's no longer here, he took it the easiest, and he said, if you're happy, I'm happy. It's almost like he didn't really care. The hijab was what was difficult for my family because all of a sudden they now had to explain my lifestyle to everybody else that had questions. And 
I understand that that's not fair to them. But at the end of the day, like, I have to answer to Allah. Even if it's my mom, I don't care about their opinions when it comes to answering to Allah and doing the right thing. I can be compassionate and merciful throughout the process. But at the end of the day, I'm going to do what's right. Do you recall what was going on through your mind as you were preparing to tell your family? I think that that was probably the most difficult part of the entire conversion process was suddenly having to explain your relationship with Allah SWT to everybody. And although that that's something we should be loud and proud about, it was it was a little difficult at first. And actually, it wasn't my family that was as hard for me as it was walking into school, to my photography school, with the hijab all of a sudden. Hmm. And everyone's like confused as to what happened. And then having to explain why all of a sudden I'm wearing the hijab. And now I could care less. You know what I mean? I don't, I've gained my confidence where I really don't care what people think of me. You know, this is me, take it or leave it. But I didn't have that confidence then. So how'd you deal with that? Or what, what kind of thoughts went through your head or fears? I think I cried the first day because my friend all of a sudden started, he thought it was like a joke. Like I, one of my photography partners, he started like laughing when I wore the hijab. And I think I, I remember just being very upset about it. But my belief is stronger than, it was always stronger than having to please them. So it didn't deter me from taking off the hijab. I still, you know, move forward, but it wasn't easy. It was kind of a take it or leave it. This is me. And you either accept me or you don't. Huh. So, so where, where'd you gain that confidence from? Or did, did it come from the background of knowledge that you first developed in yourself? Or was it straight up faith? I would say more conviction than confidence. I don't think I necessarily had confidence, but I had conviction in my faith where my belief overtook, you know, to do the right thing. But I, I would argue that I didn't really have the confidence at that point. Confidence came after later through all the struggles that I went through in life. When I hit rock bottom, in my opinion, rock bottom in my life, you start to let go of what of everything else, everybody's opinions. You just don't care anymore because you put into perspective as to what's important. Yeah, I heard a wise man once said that at the age of 20, you care about what everyone says mm-hmm. at the age of 40 you don't care about what everyone says and then at the age of 60 you realize that no one was saying anything at all in the first place exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very true <laughs> just the, the honest to god truth the raw truth is when i believe something i believe it and even though i didn't have confidence then i don't let people like sway me into doing what i want to do so i think i'm a little bit stubborn and my mom always said growing up like you're stubborn, but you're stubborn in a good way because you're going to do the right thing. So I think it's just my personality, honestly. Okay. All right, I get that. I get that. Okay, what's one thing that you would, what's one misconception about Islam that you would like your fellow Americans to know about? <laughs> oh, no. You're hitting me with some tough questions. I would say being someone that works heavily with women's rights and women empowerment, that women are considered less than in Islam. And in fact, they're so highly revealed and it's a religion that increased our rights and made sure that we were protected. You bring in someone's daughter, an innocent person, someone who's come into the house. She is the daughter of a family who loves her. She is a sister of those who love her as well. She's been brought up in a unique way. Now you've brought her with the name of Allah into your care. 
the best from amongst you are those who can appreciate her for who she is and when you have to correct her or when you have to say something you say it in the most loving and kind way never use religious blackmail to oppress your own wife the prophet sallallahu says the best from amongst you is he who is best to his wife can we talk about what led to to single motherhood and and, and the domestic violence how, how would you even define domestic violence or based off your experience what even is it abuse is two things it's power and control and people just think of it as just physical it's not abuse comes in many different forms my marriage was abusive in every aspect physically mentally verbally anything you can think of but abuse does not you do not have to have physical violence in order for it to be a domestic violence marriage and that's a huge misconception that people need to understand about abuse i can confidently say that at least for myself it wasn't the strangling or being knocked out that traumatized me it was the mental abuse and what would you define mental abuse as or what does that mean intimidation verbal abuse harassment there was always this accusatory of me doing things that I didn't. Money was a big, you know, abusive tool where I wasn't allowed to buy coffee out at Starbucks. And if I did, I was hit a couple times from it. Abuse starts very small and it progressively gets worse. And they prey on people that are vulnerable because they want to have full control over you. The abuse started very soon after our marriage and he didn't have any physical abuse towards me until two months after the birth of our son it was all verbal abuse and mental abuse it was very subtle and because i wasn't understanding it was abuse i just didn't understand why i was so depressed i didn't understand why you know my health was so terrible even though i was pregnant they will criticize you on everything and you feel just suffocated i would clean the whole house but then he'd come in and berate me because I missed a spot in the kitchen. I also wasn't allowed to buy anything. He wouldn't even supply a mattress for me. I had to sleep up in a blow-up mattress. And I think I've been, I'm someone that's a little bit compromising by nature that I didn't fight for some, even just the most basic rights. And he had the money to, he just was, everything was about power and control. How long were you, did you guys know each other before you got married? It was very quick. It was around like two months maybe. And I was trying to keep things halal, you know, and doing the right thing Islamically. And I didn't have anybody to make sure that he was a good match and, you know, make sure that there were no red flags. So you, you knew him for two months and then proceeded for an engagement, then marriage. Just Nikah, right away. Straight marriage. Right, straight marriage, yeah. Okay. And, and got pregnant right away, yeah. And when did he start showing his true self or how did he start? One week afterwards, yeah. I went out to go jog, and I, I work out every single day, and it's my outlet. I went out for a jog. I came back, and he got rid of all of my – I have no problem saying it. I don't like saying his race because I people actually ask almost to be like, oh, yes, those that type of people do this more, and that's just not the case. But I'm only giving it for reference. He's Pakistani, and I had all these Pakistani clothes prior to him, but for whatever reason, he didn't want me to have any Pakistani clothes. He didn't want me to wear it. it was, it's very weird. I don't know. Cause, but I had all these Pakistani clothes in my closet that I loved that I would use to go to weddings at. And I spent a lot of money on my own money. And he got rid of all of them. And I was like, what would you do with my clothes? He's like, I gave them away. I'm like, you gave all of these clothes away? I loved them. 
I was upset about it, but I didn't fight it. I'm like, it's one week into marriage and I wanted to try to be compromising. That was the first step of control, telling me what I can and cannot wear. And I'm probably going to get a lot, like a lot of hate on this, but it's like, you know, if, you know, if my husband says, hey, I really don't like you wearing that, I'm going to respect it. There's a difference between like a husband saying, I don't like you wearing that, you know, can you, versus taking your clothes and, th- and, and tossing it. Those are two separate things. Yeah, especially if it's like based on Islamic merit that you both agree on. Right. Like, like it's objectively uh, an Islamic like, And it's done in a compassionate way. You but know it's what not I mean? like a thing where it's like... Where it, you just take all your clothes and just give it away. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's his own culture's clothing too. Yeah, that, which is what's <laughs> odd about the whole thing. But yeah, that was the first sign. The second major sign was I was asked to speak at the ICNA convention in Connecticut about my revert story. It was a revert panel. And we were driving up to the convention. And he started accusing me of something just absurd that I wasn't able to open up my own bank account. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've lived on my own for years. I have my own car. Like, it was just like a very absurd uh, accusation that had that didn't make sense at all. I, I, if I could give you a rationale for it, I would. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? That's not true. I don't even know how the conversation started, but he just flipped and he started getting road rage, veins popping out of his neck. And I just remember just being so scared and just started like hyperventilating, crying. And I wasn't, I didn't know what was going on. And then he started crying himself. I can't say that all abusers do this, but abusers seem to be pretty textbook all the same. He then made it about him, you know? He wanted me to feel guilt, like bad that, you know, he started crying. I, I don't, I can't explain it. But I just remember being very scared because having this, you know, someone twice your size screaming in your face, it's not, you know, as a woman, it's very scary. And it got progressively worse mm-hmm. and, and more, more violent as it went on. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way abuse works is that it's actually a cycle. They, it starts out of the honeymoon phase. Everything's amazing. It's great. Then abuse starts, something clicks in them, whatever it is, they start verbally, physically abusing you. Then it becomes the remorseful stage. I'm so sorry. I'll never do this again. I'll change. This won't happen. And so they get you to the compassionate side. I'm like, okay, I forgive you. I for- okay, thank you. I believe you. It's never going to happen. And then boom, back to honeymoon stage. And then it starts again. And so every single time it gets progressively worse, but every single time they they take a bit of your spirit away. They suck you more and more in and you become less confident in who you are and they start to take over every bit of you. Is this a daily cycle or is this more like a month? He like he he'll be remorseful for a month. Well, him specifically with abusers it could be every other week, it could be, you know, whatever their pattern is. For him it was just you never knew when it was going to happen, but definitely consistently abuse. Yeah. And with him it was a lot of physical abuse a lot. What was going on through your mind and how were you, this is one thing at least I've heard about people who go through abuse is that they victim blame themselves or they say, oh, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Was that thoughts that were happening with you as well? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Uh, we, I could probably confidently say that it happens to all victims that we start questioning our self-worth. What can I do better? If I just don't say this, he won't get angry. If I, you know, just give him his space when... You know, his mom would come to me. She lived with us and she witnessed a lot of the abuse. She lived with us for part of the marriage. And she would be like, you know not to talk to him when when he's in that mode. You know what I mean? Like suddenly 
I was responsible for his abuse because I said something wrong. The first time he hit me is actually me defending the way he was treating his own mom. He was in his in her face and I got in front of her like to protect her. And I was like, don't you ever do that to your mom again. And then he pulled my shirt into another room, slammed the door, locked it, and then knocked me out. That was the first time he physically abused me. And what went on in your mind after that? I was a new mom. I remember going into the bedroom, you know, our bedroom, and he stayed in another room. And I just remember holding my baby, just crying my eyes out, not knowing what happened. And then he didn't talk to me for two days. That's another tactic that abusers do is they they withhold their love and they withhold their communication from you. They stonewall you. It's probably the worst form of abuse. And they'll make you feel like you did something. He knocked me out and he was the one avoiding me. And then suddenly two days later, he comes with, again, that's the remorseful stage. He came just, I'm so sorry, crying his eyes out. I can't believe I did that. I'm just like, this is what my father would do. You know, whatever he would say as far as apologizing. And then it goes back to the honeymoon stage. They pull you in. It's not a healthy love, but you think that you love that person. Because how can you love someone that doesn't, that can, whose, whose character is so dirty? So yeah, I thought I loved him and that person thought that they loved him, but it's definitely not healthy. I think this happens in many forms in human society where it was actually a book written by a pimp where he would say like he, he would beat the woman, but then he would also give them the treatment, the healing for what he did to them. And so they would actually be more attached to him based off of that. And that was actually a conscious tactic that he was using. Do you think that that's also something that abusers do? They It's called a trauma bond. There's actually an actual term for it. Hmm. Yeah. Like you become attached to your abuser and it's so difficult to leave. And people come in with these ignorant questions. And again, like I welcome the ignorant questions. I'm not saying you're asking ignorant questions, but I'm I mean, trying not. No, to. you're not. <laughs> but when I am posed a very ignorant question, I try to be very patient with it because they just don't know. And they, the question is, why don't you just leave? And they have rewired your brain so much to the point where you don't even know who you are. So what does that lead to? then because i that is them a, to have full and utter control of you and their self-esteem is so it's like it doesn't even exist so they have to in order for them to feel validated in order for them to feel worthy in order for to them to feel anything they have to have complete power over someone else because they don't feel anything they, they feel horrible about themselves so that's what makes them feel better is having power and so one of the first things they do is they take away your financial rights every right that you can they want to control you completely you know there a lot of Abusers, see, this didn't happen to me, but, you know, abusers will be like, you're not allowed to drive past this radius or you can only go to this person's house or this. That didn't happen with me. I didn't really have the, it, you know, it didn't, he didn't really have the option to because I kind of was like an at-home mom. And But that's very common. They want to just completely control you. Do you think it had something to do with his past? Did you, did you psychoanalyze him at all and, and recognize some things? No, it wasn't. It was very apparent. Like he was very open about it. He was very abused by his father, very much so. And there was a lot of abuse in their family against his mother and him. And I'm very careful because I've always tried to not put his family's business out there because they didn't ask for this. But at the same time, his name is private. But that's why I excused it for so long. I'm like, he's broken. He needs help. We would go to therapists, any moms. And suddenly the conversation was about how broken he is from all the abuse he had as a child. And so I excused it for so long. 
the end of the day, he's a grown man. He knows exactly what's right and wrong now. And it was up to him to change. So I could use my abuse as an excuse to abuse someone else, or I could heal and try to make change so that doesn't happen. He used it as an excuse to continue the abuse. I'm using it to make sure cycles are broken. Hmm. You can use that abuse to better yourself and actually do And help other people, whereas he did it to continue the cycle. What's one thing you wish you could tell yourself back then? To love myself, to respect myself. And this, again, I'm always careful to say it's not victim blaming, but a lot of the, the, a lot of the things that I fell into, had I loved and respected myself, I would have walked away. You know, I stayed out of, out of fear. How am I going to provide for the children? But just take away the, just pretending I didn't have the children, pretending I didn't have that, you know, the fear of taking care of them, just taking away. I don't think I would have left because I think that I had lost so much self-respect that I didn't think I deserved anything. Hmm. Were your children also old enough to be watching this, to be witnessing this? They did witness it. Yeah. But for sure, they don't remember. They were very young. Adam, my youngest, was an infant. And Elias, the older one, was about a year and a half. And I'll never forget the scream. He was in the bathtub. I was giving them, Adam was in the car seat and Elias was giving in the bath and I was giving him a bath and he grabbed me by my hair, threw me on the bed and started choking me before he did. He slammed the door open. And I just remember my one-year-old son standing in the bathtub screaming. How did that affect the rest of your life? Even dealing with others and speaking to other people. Were you even able to speak out at that time? Were you too scared to even complain to your own family and stuff? Like Nobody that? knew except for his family. All of his family knew. I and did he even family. say anything? One of his sisters was the most outspoken and I have always in my heart had gratitude towards her because she's, you know, I don't mean this in a very, in a demeaning way, but she's very cultural. You know what I mean? And so it probably meant a lot for her to speak out the way she did. And I just remember her screaming at him to, cause he had started screaming at me at her house. She screamed for him to get out of the house and to never, like, she never wants to see that again. And she just started crying and saying, this reminds me of my father. He turned out to be just like our dad. His other sisters were against it, but it was just a slap on the wrist. You know, why are you doing this? You're just like your dad. You need to get help. But abusers will continue to abuse until there's accountability. And that's what I learned the hard way. They do not stop until you make them stop. And how'd you do that? First step was leaving. That was the first step that I gained my power back is that I finally had enough. And you have this feeling where you want someone to just pick you up and take you out. It's not going to happen. There's some cases where, like, alhamdulillah, women have family where they come and get them and remove them from the situation. I didn't have that. Can you, yeah, that's the part I wanted to touch upon. Why, why is that that you don't have that part? Was your family disapproving of the marriage in the first place? No, not necessarily. I... One was fear on my behalf. I was so afraid of speaking in general. And then there's this other part of it that you still love this person. And the minute you tell them, they'll never be okay with the marriage going forward. And what if it works out? What if he changes? Then there's the third aspect of, I didn't want to hear that, oh, this is what Muslim men are. Hmm. You know what I mean? I didn't want to hear that because that's not true. There's a lot of really great Muslim men, but I didn't want to reiterate a stereotype. Last aspect is I do have an American family. You know, there's good and bads of both cultures. The 
you know, American family type way of living and, you know, the tight knit Muslim community family structure where you will live in with your family if you need to. The woman just goes back to the, you know, not all the case. Some families are very toxic and they don't have that. But in general, there would be a safe space for the woman to go back to the family. I wouldn't necessarily have that where I can just go back and just move in with my family. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you you left. You just physically left or divorced right away? I waited till he went to work. Um, I packed up my car and I drove from Texas to Florida. Wow. And I stopped. I remember crossing the border of Texas and it was if I had crossed into another country. It was just like, oh my God, I'm free. It was very hard for me. And he screamed at me, you better get back here. You better get back here. But I think that that was, you know, a pivotal moment for me where I wasn't going to listen. I was like, no, I'm, I have to leave. I didn't talk to him for a week. And a brother in the community got on the phone with him and was like, you're not going to talk to her. You're going to talk to me. A family had taken me in, me and my boys. And I, he finally realized I was serious, that I wasn't coming back. And we agreed that I would stay married to him for a year with the condition that he would get help. And he did get help and he did go through his anger management classes every week and he showed some signs of improvement, but he didn't change. And he actually did provide for me and the kids. He put us up in an apartment in Florida with a very small weekly budget, but he did put a roof over our head and grocery allowance and he went to get his therapy, but he didn't change. And I know that because he was still verbally abusing me over the phone. And being physically away, I was able to slowly gain my confidence, although hardly day and night from what I am now versus then, but enough strength to finally say enough. So I got the Islamic divorce in 2016, and then I got the legal divorce in 2017. And were there people aiding you throughout this process at all? There were a lot of people that helped financially, emotionally. I also do not like to make it this heroic story that I just did it on my own because that's not the truth. A lot of people stepped up and helped me a lot. Yeah. Were you shocked by either in a good way or a bad way how people received when you came out and said that that you were being abused? My very close friends knew what was going on, but I finally decided to go public. I think it was 2018 and he had pushed me to a level that I just I was like, you know what? The community needs to know the truth. Because I knew that it was a problem in the community, as it is in America and all around the world. Gender-based violence is a big issue. One in three women in America suffer from domestic violence. But the difference between our community is that it was very stigmatized to talk about it, that it's something that you just don't talk about. And it's like, no, we're going to talk about it. You're going to hear it whether you like it or not, because this is happening. And you want to know why it's more important is because we're Muslim. We're supposed to be better. Like, I'm not going to be out there talking about women's rights in Islam while I'm being silenced about abuse in the community. That's not what Islam is. And how did the local community take it that you told? There were some, and I still get hate to this day here and there, but it's very few. But I think I was actually shocked how much people shared it and how many messages I got. Like, that's when I really recognized how big of a problem it is because I got thousands of messages. Thank you for putting this story out there. I'm a survivor myself. And people that you would think have these perfect lives have suffered abuse. For me, I just wanted, I wanted it to be a means of education. This is a problem in our community, just like it is anybody else, and we have to fix it. And from there, I didn't necessarily intend for all of a sudden to be working with organizations to help other survivors. I wanted to just, there's something about when you know someone else went through something 
that that alone is comforting. If you know that someone else went through it, you can feel a little bit better that someone understands you. That alone can make someone feel so much better that they're not alone. And I think that was my purpose. My efforts towards helping other survivors is never going to slow down. Hmm. Unlike abusers, you used your pain to actually help others. Yeah. You can turn your pain into something beautiful. And I could focus on all of the trauma that I went through, but just recognizing that life is beautiful and that's not the way to live. That's not the way a marriage should be. And learning to love yourself so that you don't ever let anyone treat you like that. So that's the one thing I want to tell other survivors is that it was never their fault. They deserve so much more. Are you even capable of recognizing that someone's going to be domestically violent towards you beforehand? Do you think there are signs? There are signs. However, I'm careful to not make it seem like not victim blame when I try to speak about it for other women because abusers are very good at hiding who they are. They're manipulators and they don't put out their full selves until they have control over you. And that's their goal is to have complete and utter control over you because everything's a power dynamic to them. So I try to educate women on maybe some signs looking back what would have been a red flag and I just didn't know at that time. So they hopefully can recognize it beforehand. But the reality is, is they're also very good manipulators. Yeah. I feel like one of the signs based off what you're saying, and I, I actually, I only know probably one other woman that's been domestically abused. Is Stin- I have to correct you on that. I guarantee you know a lot more. They just haven't told you. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. But it seems like stinginess is a core one. Yeah. Financial abuse is a very big deal, is like very prominent. And that, that's actually the intention behind my question is in order to help other women be able to recognize it before marrying them and before having children with them. Are there signs that you think are telltale signs and looking back at your own experience you can recognize? I would say one of the biggest signs is like quick to be angry and over and what are they angry over? And just off bat lack of trust of what you're doing and who are you with and who are you talking to? When I was started to get like screamed at, like, where were you? And I was like, I was grocery shopping. And it was just this lack of trust, like when I sincerely wasn't doing anything. So signs of like, you know, some jealousy is normal to human nature. Unhealthy jealousy is something that you have to be like conscious about. Also things that I would look at is how do they treat their immediate members of their family and how do they respect their mother and do they speak, you know, well about their own mom and what is their view on what a what a wife is? Do they speak about her in a way that's less than a man? Or is it, no, this is my partner and I respect her and I love her and she's going to be my partner in life. Things that I would also look at is, you know, not just how they treat their immediate family members, but how do they treat people that random strangers on the street that can do nothing for them. Those are the things that I would recommend to be very in tune about and, and be very conscious about. I look, I don't, When I speak about it, I try not to victim blame myself, but had I waited longer and gotten to know his character better, I would have seen these signs because I was looking at Dean. MashaAllah, he gives chutzpahs in the masjid. MashaAllah, he gives street dawah. Look how involved he is. He wears thobes. He prays all his prayers. So like these are the things that we think would be considered a good person, but that just makes him a practicing Muslim. But the deen is not in his heart because someone with Islam truly in their heart, they would treat people, you know, with basic decent respect 
at bare minimum. Well, what's it like being a single mother and doing having a new startup and a new project you're working on? Because it's not something that especially the Muslim community really talks about often enough, like single motherhood and even in the general public doesn't really talk about it. I wish that, you know, I was having this conversation last night. I wish men in the community would step up more. (laughs) That's the honest to God truth. I feel like single mothers, we help each other out. But what about children like my sons that I can never give them that male role model? No matter how much I love them, no matter how much I try to discipline them, I'm still the mother. And I'm still going to be looked at the mom. No matter how much I, I, you can say all day long of like, I can, I play both roles and I do, but I can't replace a male figure in the household. It is missing. They do have their dad. And yes, he does love them. But I will say publicly, no, he's not a good role model because a good role model wouldn't have done what he's done, you know, because a part of being a role model is teaching men how to be men. And clearly that's not the case. So I think that that's one thing that happened in the community that there there were more men to take on that older brother figure to show the younger, you know, boys like my sons on what it is to be a man, because I can't fill that role. Do you think you have a a solution? Like, how would men even go about doing that? Is it like when they go to the mosque? I get them involved. You know, we're here at Adams Center and they go to Quran here every single day. I get them involved. They're on basketball teams. So I do what I can to try to get them involved. But that's all I can do is just do the best I can. What, what is a way that we could do this as, as Muslim men? How, how can we even approach this situation? Because many of us don't even know a single mother or don't even know how to approach one about something like that. I think that we could use, you know, our local masjid communities and create like almost like a big brother, little brother mentorship program. I think that that should be in like every masjid. We're always like trying to build new mosques and everything rather than actually build from within and focus on services that are really desperately needed within our communities. And to me, that's one of them. What would a good mentor look like for a Muslim guy to be? Just take them out to, to, to play sports and stuff like that? Honestly, something as simple as that, where it could be, you know, just that I'm a big proponent on quality versus quantity. It could be an hour or two a week where it's that quality time where some children like my sons could even just hang out and be themselves with a a male role model. Then you could do more male programs in, you know, just for men. You know, I obviously am the first person to be all about women empowerment, right? But the reality is, is men are broken in our community. They're broken. And the minute that they even so much talk about mental health, it's like shamed. And I think that if we don't focus on men's mental health just as much as we do women empowerment programs, we're never going to get anywhere and have healthy relationships. I actually pitched the idea here. I was like, we need a mental health program for men because they're shamed into not being to believing that they're not allowed to talk about their feelings in a healthy way. What would you say to anyone out there that's struggling with domestic violence? That there's this fear that you won't be able to make it on your own and you will. You will. And it's not going to be easy. I'm not going to put a, this picture out there that it's this like, oh, once you're out, it's good. You're fine. No, it is really hard. And you are going to go through a roller coaster of emotions, but there is life at the end of the tunnel. And it's a beautiful life. That's not the way a marriage should be. And learning to love yourself so that you don't ever let anyone treat you like that.
they deserve so much more. Sister, I can't even see your face. Sister, I can't even hear your voice. Sister, I can't even smell your scent. You must be the one I last sent. She got a head full of knowledge and a heart full of fear. Eyes full of love and her hands full of care. Loose to the garments that she likes to wear. She could have a good body, but she prevents the stares. I like the way she gets all embarrassed when I recite a verse. I like the way she wears a rabbi with the converse. And she don't let him go to sleep stressful. But she don't want to get cursed by the angels Sister, I don't even see your face Sister, I don't even hear your voice Sister, I don't even smell your scent You must be the one who lost scent Pious sister Lisa Vogel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast Thank you so much, I appreciate it I'm your host, Mahmoud Al-Ansari And this is the Ansari Podcast <laughs>